Welcome to the Radio Book Club, which is a collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU. As always, my co-host, Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. We are here before a packed crowd at the Boulder Bookstore with a hometown author. And this has been an incredible read. So who have we been reading for the month of May, Arsene? We've been reading Buzzy Jackson with her new novel, To Die Beautiful, which is set in... The Netherlands during World War II involves the resistance movement. Delighted to have Buzzy here in front of, as I said, a packed house at the Boulder Bookstore. You are a Boulder-based author, but this book couldn't be further removed, <laughs> certainly geographically and in time-wise. As Arsene said, it's set during World War II in the Netherlands, but it's based on a real person we'll talk about. Yeah. But why did you want to talk about the Dutch experience in World War II when there's been so much, so many stories explored? Why, what, what was it about the Dutch experience that you wanted to explore? Yeah, um, I, you know, I first found out about Hani Schaft um, when I was just on a vacation to Amsterdam and I had never heard of her, but I was, I do have some friends in Amsterdam uh, who study the Dutch Holocaust and through them I had learned some pretty shocking things about it, which I never knew about basically the Netherlands being the most dangerous place in Nazi-occupied Europe during World War II to be a Jew. More, more Jews died there, um, both in absolute numbers and percentage-wise, than any other Western European country um, outside of Germany, which is pretty shocking. About 75% of the, of the Jewish population was killed. So I was sort of interested in the topic just from talking to them, and then I discovered in a museum, the Museum of the Resistance in uh, Amsterdam, this story about this young woman. Well, I didn't really see the story, but I just saw a little case that showed um, a pair of her glasses. It was just a pair of glasses, a pistol, and a photograph of these two young women dressed up, one sort of dolled up in her like cute outfit, and one dressed as a man. And there was just a very small card that said, you know, this is a photo of these two members of the Dutch resistance who blah, blah, blah. And I thought, that's incredible. I thought, I'm just going to go and buy the biography of this woman when I get out of this museum. But there was no biography. <laughs> and so, at least not in English. And there really hadn't been a good, a, like a serious book about Hani Schaft, even in Dutch, since probably the 1970s. And so... I started out um, just being fascinated by it and thinking, well, maybe I could write a biography about her because in the past I've written nonfiction. Um, and so I started that process with much trepidation of just how much research I was going to have to do. I don't speak Dutch. <laughs> I don't have Dutch heritage. Um, but it was such an incredible story that I felt like I had to just try to do it anyway, even though I didn't have any expertise per se. Really, the only expertise I had was the knowledge of how to do research. So that is what I started doing. That was seven years ago. <laughs> well, you've written nonfiction yeah. and you, you know, history and you wrote a book about blues women. Mm -hmm. And so what is telling the story as fiction? What, what did it give you that you couldn't have done in biography? And do you still think about what a biography could have given you that fiction maybe didn't give you? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I definitely, for the first few years of working on this book, just assumed I'd be writing a biography. And so I was collecting all the 
materials and various archives and interviews and stuff um, with that in mind. And then at a certain point I realized, you know, the most well-known victim of the Dutch Holocaust was, of course, Anne Frank. We've all heard about her. And the main reason we know about her is because she left behind that diary. And Hani Shoft did not leave a diary, and most people don't. And I started to come up against the problem that if I wanted to have any direct quotes in the book, if I wanted to have any dialogue in the book, I was going to have to do something different. And it was actually my literary agent who suggested I try it as a novel. Um, I, was a, I was definitely, it took me a while to come around to the idea of doing it as a novel, I think mostly because I was scared. And um, <clears throat> I was, and I was intimidated because uh, these are real people. And um, it it's, it's a big, uh, I don't know, it takes a lot of gall on some level to write the stories of real people. Most of, a few of them were still alive at the time when I started writing. Um, but I did finally find a good model in um, Schindler's List, which probably most people have heard about, which is a novel that I think most people think of as a nonfiction book. And Thomas Kennelly, the author of Schindler's List, uh, wrote a whole essay in the beginning of that book about his process of writing it. And he, in that essay, which I was reading, he listed all the same worries that I had about, should he really do this? Is he the right person to tell this important story, et cetera, et cetera. And then finally, he just came around to, it's too important of a story not to try and get into the hands of as many readers as possible. And so it seemed like writing it as a novel where I could hopefully draw people into the emotions of these characters and the relationships. Um, that seemed like the best way to go. So I just closed my eyes <laughs> and started doing it. And I want to thank my writing group, who are all here tonight, who read all the early drafts of this and gave me a lot of confidence. Thank you, gals, to you know to go forward with that. Because although I never published a novel before, this is my debut novel. I'm 52 years old. I'm here to say it can be done. <laughs> um, I, I, had, I actually have three practice novels, so to speak, uh, you know, tucked away somewhere in the cloud where I'll never find them again, hopefully. Um, but, you know, so, the, so I felt like I've been trying to do it for a long time and I just decided to go for it. Well, it reads like a thriller. I mean, it is oh, so page turning. And when I first got it, I was like, "Ooh, this is a big book. De devoured it. I honestly couldn't oh, put it down. It really is. That's so sweet. There's so much propulsion in it. And of course, most people know the overall scope of what happened in World War II, but the details in this about mm. particularly the Dutch experience. But we have to talk about Hanny Shaft, the girl with the red hair. Yeah. And the cover of the book shows her with beautiful flaming red hair and her hand of resistance up mm. as she's standing on a bridge. I presume that's in Amsterdam. Yeah. Hanny Shaft, who is she? Hanny Shaft, um, you know, she is pretty well known in the Netherlands. Obviously, she's not that well known uh, here or elsewhere. Um, but she was, this was really one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is because she was just a very ordinary person. She was a young woman who if she was known for anything growing up, it was being very shy, not talking in class, kind of a wallflower. And um, when she started university, she started law school in Amsterdam, right around the time the Nazis occupied the Netherlands. And 
something happened when she was in college that just completely activated her and catalyzed this. What I think, and I try to show in the book, was she already had very strongly held beliefs about justice and fairness and what she wanted to do in the world. She wanted to work for the United Nations or the um, League of Nations, which, of course, collapsed on the eve of World War II. So that wasn't a great uh, outlook for her career. Um, and uh, but she had those desires, you know, what we would now call like human rights. That was her her sort of area. And I think it was meeting two really good friends of hers, making these two good friends in college, Philine and Sonia, who were Jewish. And I think they were really the first Jewish people she had ever known or known, you know, known that they were Jewish. Not that it really mattered to them. They were pretty secular people. But of course, as the occupation went on, it became very obvious that Hani's experience <clears throat> in occupation was much different from her friends. And I think it was just seeing um, this rapid descent into hell that the Jews were, were enduring that um, I think it just changed her. And I think she just, something changed in her mind and she decided, she was asked to sign a loyalty oath to the Nazi party. All the students in the Netherlands were asked to do this in 1943. Uh, happy to say that 85% of them refused to do it and they were all kicked out of school. So um, her career, her dream of working for the League of Nations and being a lawyer ended. And it was then that she basically said, okay, fine, come back, I'm gonna hide you in my house. Sort of same situation Anne Frank went through. Um, I'm gonna hide you in my house, my parents' house, and I'm gonna join the resistance and just, I mean, kick some ass basically. <laughs> She had been in a novel. She's doing some resistance work mm -hmm. in Amsterdam as a law student. Yeah. And then she gets a contact when she goes back to her hometown. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, I thought that was really interesting. It's because the book really is a study on what radicalizes somebody, mm -hmm. you know? Yes. And it's really, and she even says at one point, like when she first goes to Nurse Decker, I think is her name, in Amsterdam. And it's it's little things. It's just getting some supplies to some refugees or maybe being a courier for things. Maybe she doesn't know what's in the package, right. but it's not like full out what we would think of as violent resistance work. Sure. But she says as she starts that, you know, she she was just looking for um, some some female hygiene supplies, really. And they're saying, yeah. you go, go to the where this nurse Decker is. Mm -hmm. And that changed her entire life. Yeah. Was that a moment? Do you have any? Was that based in truth or you, were you looking for how to get her into this situation? Yeah. Well, her parents, Hani's parents were very uh, politically active and um, her dad was the father of a, a teacher's union and that kind of thing. So I think growing up, she knew about activism. She didn't really participate in any of it. But you're right. It wasn't until she moved to Amsterdam and started volunteering with the Red Cross. And... Um, the thing about volunteering with the Red Cross is a factual thing. That is the first thing that I sort of located that seemed like, um, you know, stepping outside her normal life to try to do something new. And I also think that, um, you know, one of the things she probably learned there and what I talk about in the book is, um, as you said, this issue of refugees. Because, of course, by the early 1940s, all of Western Europe had thousands of Jewish refugees and other other people fleeing Nazi Germany 
Um, so the refugee issue had been really an issue for a long time in the Netherlands. And, you know, that was happening. Um, I was reading about this and learning about this right at the same time, if we recall in our own history, just before the pandemic, when um, families and children being locked in cages on the Mexican border. And the the parallels were so striking to me. And it it did teach me, I think, a lesson about that the really the first sign, the sort of canary in the coal mine, and this was true in, in the Netherlands, and I think it's true today, the, of like rising fascism, rising authoritarianism, political upheaval elsewhere, is the arrival of refugees on your doorstep. And it's like an early warning sign that trouble is coming. And also it's a sign that we need to help these people. <laughs> you know, we they have the same values we do, that's why they're coming here. And so, at that point, I was so, I had no idea if this book would ever get published. I had no idea if it would ever, you know, uh, if I would ever finish it. <laughs> it is quite long. Um, but at that point, I was so galvanized because I, I felt like I could really relate to what she was um, going through. Of Like once you, once you sort of pick up one rock and you see what's under there, you either turn your back on it or you keep going forward, you know? And so that's what, that's what she did. And I think every step she took, just took her into, you know, more danger, but also things were just getting much worse year by year for the Dutch and, of course, for the Dutch Jews then. Well, there's also a real exploration about just the moral quandaries that yeah. you deal with. As you see slowly creep in, it was really through her friendship with the two Jewish girls that yeah. she started to see just how bad it was. Because right. she was a little bit naive, and I think so many people were in denial. Yeah. But then the first time that she picks up a gun mm -hmm. and actually moves from just delivering packages right. to refugee shelters to actually direct violent action. Yeah. It's remarkably quick for her. She, and she, you know, contemplates that as well. Mm -hmm. This idea of, okay, I, I can do this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one, probably the most incredible thing is like, how does she make that transformation? And um, I think by the time she got to that point of um, she's hiding two Jewish friends in her parents' house, which puts not only her friends at risk, uh, but also her parents and herself at risk of death for hiding these people. I think once that kind of uh, crystallized in her mind that those were the stakes, then I think she was willing to do anything, you know? And fortunately for her, there were also two other young women in the resistance cell that she joined. And, you know, those two, Freddie and Truce Overstegen, um, who were sisters, they talk a lot in their own memoirs about a very similar experience, which is of going from zero to 60, kind of with, you know, as somebody asked them if they wanted to join the resistance. They asked their mother for permission because they were 14 and 16 years old. Their mother, who was a really serious activist on behalf of refugees, um, gave them permission and said, you know, do what you have to do. And so they immediately started doing it. And I think when Hani got there and those two women were already armed, I think that probably gave her some confidence that this was something that could happen. But I should say it was very unusual for women to be in the armed resistance during during the war. It's just a coincidence that these three women happened to be in the same cell because they didn't meet each other until they joined. So, but I think it gave them strength. So, you know, that, so she becomes famous 
basically, the girl with the red hair. Mm -hmm. And Hitler calls her that, yeah. you know, as, as her violence picks up. And I, I don't think I'm giving away too much, but, you know, she starts assassinating people. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> you know, so I think, but that was a remarkable turnaround. I was hoping that you could read a passage oh, as sure. she's getting ready yeah. to go on a mission. Right. And this is also where um, you, you really see her working with the sisters as well in this passage. Yeah. Yeah, there, and I'm, I was really fortunate to be in touch with the, some of the descendants of the Overstegen sisters. So that helped me have some confidence about writing some of these scenes. Um, okay, so as I mentioned, Fr Freddie and Truce are these two uh, young young women about Hani's age, so like late teens, early 20s, and they've already been doing this for a while. Um, we'll go tonight, said Truce. Be ready by five. I was thrilled. An hour before we were about to leave, I began constructing my costume for the evening. The Germans were still looking for the girl with the red hair, but fortunately my hair was holding its black dye. I was more careful about my disguise when I was out in public now, making sure not only my hair was right, but also my outfit and makeup, taking the time to darken my eyebrows and lashes with the satin pouch of makeup Sonia had left behind. I enjoyed the transformation now, from the powder puff to the red lipstick. The blue dress still fit loosely, so I wore that and a pair of outmoded patent leather heels from Trinchier's cuffed uh, trunk of cast-offs that looked as if they had been there since the 1920s. Peering at my reflection, I noted faded bloodstains on the bodice and skirt, but they passed for everyday filth. Nobody actually looked nice anymore, and all our clothing was worn to threads. Even with its disquieting brown blotches, it remained my prettiest dress. Jesus, honey, are you ready yet? Truce slung herself around the doorway and watched me make myself up. It was nearly five o'clock. She approved of me wearing a disguise and, in fact, demanded it, but she had a low tolerance for vanity. I knew it, and I didn't care. Vanity made me feel strong. I thought of the phrase I'd seen once in a children's book about cowboys and Indians, war paint. Almost, I said, stroking the delicate wand of mascara out to the tips of my strawberry blonde eyelashes. We're going to be late, and if we're too late, we'll have to. Truce, my hand wobbled, and I tried not to blink. I was still an amateur at this. Give me a minute. She grunted. You're procrastinating. No, I'm not. This is probably the most difficult thing I'll do all night. Yeah, she said, laughing. I can tell. Come on. I admired Truce's pragmatism, but sometimes it drove me crazy. Everything was black and white with her. Look, we could die out there tonight, yes? So just give me one more second to do this right, I said. I didn't want to try to explain to her what I was doing because she wouldn't understand. I finished my right eye and pushed the lashes up with my fingertips to give them some curl, something I'd learned from watching Sonia back in her Amsterdam bedroom. You look fine, Truce said. Just fine? I teased, swiveling around to reveal the glory of my handiwork. If I have to die tonight, Truce, I'm going to die beautiful. <laughs> That's author Buzzy Jackson reading from that novel, To Die Beautiful. And that perfectly explains the title in one way. But when I was reading the book, I mean, I one of the things was about how how do you hang on to humanity how do you hang on to human dignity and that sense of inner beauty and there's a, a phrase that truce and freddie's mom uses which is stay human and in fact you have that as the last word and you know that yeah. you have in the book and what is it about this idea and the challenge that the resistors had or really anybody living through the war how do you stay human how do you 
have that inner beauty and just even that inherent humanity when you're in such dehumanizing conditions? Yeah, it's, I mean, it was such a huge question for everybody in the resistance and uh, remained so after the war. Um, you know, Truce uh, talked, Truce, her later career after the war, she went on to be essentially a social activist for the rest of her life. So she talked a lot about her wartime experience and um, was very upfront about the number of people she had killed. And, you know, she remembered every single time she did it and how excruciating it was for her to do it. Uh, partly because it's terrible to kill another person, but also the resistance members knew that if they killed a Nazi officer, there were going to be retributions from the Nazi side. They might just come to a neighborhood and round up 20 random civilians and shoot them in the street as retaliation for killing one Nazi. That happened a lot. And there, everyone in the resistance knew it. They had to constantly make that calculation. Is it worth it? Um, and I think some most of the time they felt it was. Occasionally they felt like, you know, terrible about it. But... Um, but I think, you know, looking back, people like Truce would always say, I, I regret that I had to do it, but I don't regret that I did it. Because if, if we didn't get them, they were just going to get us. That's just how it goes. I should say also that, you know, the those who survived the war, who did this kind of resistance work, um, were pretty mentally, psychologically shattered for the rest of their lives in many ways, you know, and grappled with PTSD and all sorts of, you know, uh, real trauma that never let them go. And of course, so did the Jewish survivors um, who had similar, you know, stories to tell. So it's the stay human part, I think, was just something that they constantly told each other to remind each other, we're doing this for a reason. You know, we all here agree it's okay to do this, but like we're still people and let's try to remember that so you open the book the prologue i guess is hani is already in prison so you read the whole book knowing that she's going to get caught why did you make that decision to do that rather than have the reader wondering what was going to happen you know um i think i wanted to do that because the the change, the sort of contrast between who Hani was when the book starts, which is a somewhat naive college student, and the person she becomes by the end of it is so stark that I, you know, on a purely sort of just uh, literary level, I wanted to give the reader a sense that things are going to pick up here. <laughs> you know, she's not going to be a boring student for her entire life. Um, but, uh, but also I, you know, I wanted to sort of give you an image of Hani, who Hani was by that point, which was a pretty, uh, you know, battle scarred woman and then go drop you back into her a few years earlier so that you can kind of ask for yourself, like, how is this transformation going to take place? You know, and that's, that's one of those things, you know, that made me happy. I was writing fiction rather than nonfiction, because I think it, it's the kind of thing you can do in fiction um, that that works better. You have the book divided into segments, you know, different parts of the war. And there's one particular segment that's a part of the history that I did not know about. And this is the Dutch hunger winter and how starvation and imposed famine 
how famine was imposed by the Nazis on the Dutch people. And I think almost 20,000 people starved to death yeah. because they were deliberately withholding food. So could you could you talk a little bit about that? Because that's yeah. actually a huge part of the story in the passage you read. She's talking about being thin. I mean, obviously yes. in a war, there's less provisions, but yeah. hunger and starvation is a big part of the story. Yeah, it is. And if you see photographs of Hani Schaft from the before the war, through the war, and by the end of the war, I mean, she just gets so thin and drawn and that was the case for millions of of people in the Netherlands during that time the hunger winter which was the last winter of the of World War II in the Netherlands um, so 44 to 45 um, it's still a huge trauma in the psyche of the Netherlands it was something I had never heard about either before I started researching this book but as you say um you know, the famine was imposed by the Nazis. I mean, it would have been hard anyway to get a lot of supplies, but they, you know, they say famines have never occurred in a democracy. They're always a political element to a famine. And um, and I think that, that the Nazis knew they were losing it by late 1944. Uh, they didn't want to admit it. And one of the only weapons they had was to keep food and supplies away from the people they were, you know, occupying and uh, to keep the people down, essentially. It was, there's a lot of memoirs in the Netherlands from the hunger winter um, and people who, again, for some people, that was the central trauma they experienced during World War II. Uh, and there's also, I think, demographically, there's studies of, you know, the birth rates of people in the during the war and in the years after Dutch people today are some of the tallest people in the world but after the war they were you know smaller than most Europeans because lack of nutrition so it's um it was something I had never heard about but it was such a it was such a kind of like classically horrible Nazi tactic and they continued to do it literally until the last day of the war even though, you know, at, by that point, treaties had been signed. They weren't supposed to do this and that and whatever. It, people starved for a really long time. Yeah, I mean, that, that's one of the many shocking things is, you know, when she's in jail, it's already March and April mm-hmm. of 45. And you're like, the liberation is just around the corner, you know. And, and, but for the Nazis, there was no let up. And, and we know that in the concentration camps, you know, yeah. they were really killing many, many Jews in those last couple months. And it was just, you know, it's hard to imagine, really. It's kind of this desperation. Yeah. It's like when you know you're being led by a maniac, you know, who's just, I mean, today, actually, May 4th, um, is the National Remembrance Day in the Netherlands. And so this is the day where they remember all of the people who died in World War II and and various conflicts after. And... um, yeah, it's the the I I thought that that aspect of her story that she was in prison, you know, it was just weeks away was the was the end of the war, and yet it's just the kind of thing. I mean, for me as a historian and also just as an author, that is so fascinating is that you know we can all look back and go, the end of the war was only two weeks away, but of course nobody there knows that, and that was one of those things I really tried to keep in the front of my mind as I was writing it is that, you know, 
1943-44, these people don't know if the war is going to go on for eight more years. You know, they who knows? So it's that level of desperation of just not knowing if, if this will ever end. I, you know, without making the book too grueling, I did try to include some of that mindset because um, fortunately I've never been in that position, but I can only imagine how incredibly draining and depressing it would be. Well, we're going to say goodbye to the radio audience right now, but we're going to have lots more conversation with Buzzy Jackson and take audience questions in the podcast only edition after hours at the Radio Book Club. So radio listeners, subscribe to the podcast. You get the bonus episode and uh, we'll just say goodbye right now. And thank you to everyone who's been joining us here at the Boulder Bookstore. But before we do, as we always do at the end of each radio episode, we announce what we're reading for the next month. So Arson, the month of June, what have we got lined up? We're reading a wild novel next month, Sister Liberty by Greg Hill. He is a, a author who lives east of Denver. He's always kind of written about east of Denver. But in this novel, he's writing about a French family in the 1800s that ends up coming to a religious cult in Indiana. It's Greg's third visit to the book club, and so we're delighted to have him back. But in the meantime, we're going to say, as I said, goodbye to the radio audience. Thank you to Buzzy Jackson, to everyone here at the Boulder Bookstore. For KGNU, I'm Maeve Conran, and with the Boulder Bookstore, Arsene Kashkashian, my co-host of the Radio Book Club. Thanks. Thanks, Maeve. Thanks, Maeve. Thanks, Arsene.